Mindfulness Mode, Episode 49. Complete silence for 10 days, not talking at all. By the end, I can just remember feeling so fresh and new. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I want to challenge you today. If you know anyone whose life would be improved with mindfulness, to share this podcast with them. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm here with Jeff Augustinelli, and we're ready to talk about all kinds of things to do with mindfulness. Hey, Jeff, are you in mindfulness mode? Absolutely, yes, Bruce. Fantastic. Jeff Augustinelli is a life and business coach and was trained as a macrobiotic chef who focuses on alternative healing. Jeff is an avid believer that eating raw foods is a recipe for better health. For more than six years, Jeff submersed himself in learning and practicing everything food and health related. Jeff then became fascinated with digital marketing and business and entrepreneurship and proceeded to create a podcast called The Next Level. So Jeff, tell us a little bit more about you. Tell Mindful Tribe how you became interested in mindfulness. Well, first, Bruce, you said it, you said it great, so thank you for the, for the excellent introduction. And at first, I started to get into mindfulness as a result of being aware that you know, I was helping people through macrobiotics and through raw food and mainly through diet and exercise. And I guess you can say what, what I would consider conventional means, like nothing really outside of the standard medical or Western medical model. Things that are on the macronutrient level, on the exercise level, not really delving into thoughts, not really delving into anything of what people would consider, say, metaphysical or woo-woo. So right, I sure. started to get into yoga and a lot of different practices where creating and cultivating a particular mindset was not only helpful, but it really it just elevated everything. So, you know, I look at mindfulness as kind of the, the accelerator. You know, it's one of those things that no matter what you're doing, you can apply it and get massive results fairly quickly and consistently. Yes, and isn't it interesting that it's not really known in the in the mainstream world that that's true. It's it's really fascinating Bruce, but not only that, it's, you know, slightly uh, slightly frustrating on some levels too because it's like not frustrating in a sense of of anger, but frustrating in the sense of like wow, like really like they just don't get that part and why. Right. You know, yeah. Part of it is that I think a lot of us, maybe somewhere in the past, we thought, okay, it's it's got to have a spiritual element, or it's it has to have this this thing that I'm not just really that comfortable with, and maybe it goes against my current religion or my current beliefs. So I think that's part of it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So tell Mindful Tribe how you use mindfulness today in your life, and when you do your coaching and working with other people. Mindfulness for me translates the most in coaching into listening. Uh, A lot of times I find that most people, myself included in the past, who are listening to somebody else speak or hearing somebody share a problem or a challenge, that they're almost rehearsing what they're going to say next. And for me, that really gets in the way of, of creating a solution or hearing what solution presents itself. So for me, mindfulness 
translates into tracking my breath. It translates into being aware that I'm a container and being receptive to help this individual either transform their life or their business. And as well as, you know, I have three kids. So whenever I'm dealing with anything children related, whether it's my five-year-old or my 15-year-old, I'm being extremely mindful to one, be receptive and two, to create more of a, an action as opposed to a reaction. Does that make sense, Bruce? Yeah, that does. That does. And we really have to be receptive with our, with our kids. So I'm glad you use that term and, you know, just listening to see where they're at at a given point and being positive role models for them. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well said. I think that's more important than anything because, you know, we can tell them things all day long, but it's, it's really when, when we're modeling certain behaviors, that's what they're going to be picking up. Absolutely, yes. And it's funny, I'm, I'm kind of laughing over here, Bruce, because I, you know, I often will say to myself and to others, it's very hard to convince someone who's angry to calm down if you yell at them while trying to have them calm down. Yeah. You know, it's like if someone's angry, you're like, would you just relax? <laughs> Oftentimes it just, it really exacerbates the entire thing. That's usually the worst thing to say, isn't it, Jeff? Exa- yeah, it's, it's an amplification. It's like yeah. agreeing with it and taking it on in a sense. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So with your children, you've used mindfulness a lot. Tell us more details about that. Wow. Um, that's actually the place where I use it the most. Mm-hmm. Um, my... Uh, soon-to-be six-year-old, the Violetta, is a powerhouse. I'm not like into astrology really in the sense that I know much about it, but she's an Aries and apparently uh, an Aries and that age, she's really uh, into I and me and very defining who she is as an individual. So she has a very strong personality. I'm also 100% Italian on my side. Right. So she's 50% Italian, and, and I don't know if you know much about Italians, but we tend to be a little bit, <laughs> we have strong personalities in a sense, sure. I guess you could say. So it's, for me, the, the biggest thing is to, um, and this is a daily practice, Bruce, I'm talking 24-7, 365, is being completely diligent to try not to label actions and behaviors and, and her. Try not to label her as anything. For instance, if she's doing something, I try my best and I'll be full disclaimer here. Like I definitely don't do this 100% of the time, but do we do anything 100% of the time? Is if she says something rude or if she hits someone, I do my best not to say what you just did is rude. Right. I try to create understanding around it. So it, it requires me, especially if I feel any sense of embarrassment that my child just maybe hit a kid or spit on them or did something that's completely what I would consider rude. Right. I really, in that case, get to breathe and chart my own reaction. So this is something that I use to describe emotions because there's a physiological response that happens when we have a reaction, right? Mm-hmm. It's like we start to feel our quote unquote blood boiling or we start to feel a certain emotion in our body in a certain place. So the first thing I do is I get present with my emotion. And this all happens within seconds. This is not like I'm getting present with my emotions. (laughs) This is like, oh my goodness, this thing is flaming up inside me. And right now I'm cooling the flames. So I feel it. I get present with it. And I wait until I can speak uh, in a deliberate way, not in a, a, a tone of angst or of desperation or of shame or of blame or of anything like that. So the goal here for me is to make sure that I maintain my sense of rapport, my uh, connection with my daughter. 
that's the the utmost goal. I find it's extremely helpful to have this identified ahead of time. Like if you know for sure that you're one of your main goals in life is to be integrous, you're going to operate in your daily life very different than if your motto is make as much money as I can by whatever means possible. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. So for me, I know I have an agreement with myself that her individuality and her sense of self-esteem and her willingness to chart her own path in the world is top priority. So that really dictates everything else. But as far as mindfulness goes, it really comes down to, Bruce, it comes down to breathing. It comes down to being willing to not react right away and to almost hear my words and see what that action is going to produce before I let that thing fly out of my mouth. Right. And I really like how you described it as cooling the flames. You know, when I work with my my coaching clients and sometimes they have issues with bullying somehow, I mean, mm. it's a child or a bullying at work. And, you know, that's what I talk about is, you know, you just got to wait till you're a little bit more cool, till you're a little bit more relaxed. And, you know, we all have to do it. But with bullying, you know, there's so much of this labeling, like you talked about earlier, you know, oh, she was a bully, he's a bully. Mm. And, you know, so important not to do that and it really changes your outlook on things when you when you make an effort to not do it oh my goodness it's it's a huge practice because that's our first you know fight or flight fight flight or flee you know it's just one of those things or freeze really it's one of those things where it's easier to assign blame than it is to take responsibility yeah way easier way easier jeff have you ever had any challenges with mindfulness any times when you thought man this just doesn't seem to be working for me um, yes, <laughs> I guess it's a short answer. And the, the reason I say it like that is what, what really sparked in mind when you said that is, um, I, one of the things, I, the reason I said cooling the flames is because there's a book, uh, which I love by Thich Nhat Hanh. It's called wisdom for cooling the flames. The book is called anger. And I was a bit of a hothead when I was a kid. So one of the things I've really had to deal with, uh, you know, in my childhood and early adulthood into now is, is really taming that flame and getting completely present um, with what could be a temper. So yes, I definitely have times where I fly off the handle, whether it be out loud or internally. And I know for me, I have certain cues physiologically and verbally that if I hear myself say something or if I feel something, I go lock myself in a room, uh-huh. not like literally lock the door, but like I will excuse myself from the situation and I'll just get real. Be like, look, anything I say right now is not going to be helpful. I'm going to go do something else. Right. Smart. You've identified yeah. that about yourself and you just, you just know to do it. Yeah. And it's not always comfortable either. It's not fun. Like I'll be frank about that. It's just yeah. one of those things where it's like, you know, sometimes you just, you got to do what you got to do. And if you have an agreement with yourself to be integrous and to help those around you and elevate them and raise them and be nurturing. You can't do that if you're in a reaction. Right. Very true. Very true. Jeff, I want to switch over to your knowledge of food and you've trained and learned so much in the whole field of, of healthy food and healthy eating. How does mindfulness relate to food and our effort to eat healthy? Every which way up, down, left, right, and sideways. Um, Many people have, foods that they're accustomed to eating that, well, you know, pack on the pounds, uh, literally, um, as well as I speak metaphysically sometime, if you will. So I'm Mm going to just say it the way it's coming up is a lot of people emotionally eat. 
right? A mm-hmm. lot of people will eat things for comfort. They'll eat things when they get into a certain state. So a lot of times what happens if someone's used to eating comfort food when they're stressed out, oftentimes that's why they pack on the pounds. They may be overweight because they eat a certain way unbeknownst to them when they're stressed, but they're living in a consistent state of stress 24-7. So their habitual eating patterns not only contribute to, but they oftentimes block the real resolution or helping them overcome what they're quote-unquote stuffing down. So that's one example. But mindfulness as far as food goes, you know, if you make the right choices, science has said it's really, if you look at it, Bruce, it's not hard to eat, you know, a mostly alkaline diet. Eat your veggies. We've heard that forever and a day. Obviously, like don't overeat meats and proteins and those things. They're acid forming. They, you know, they've been shown to cause arthritis and any type of physical ailments. Uh, Don't eat a really high cholesterol diet. You know, obviously don't eat mashed potatoes with a stick of butter in it every day. It's Mm -hmm. just not going to be a great result. So it's not like we don't know what to do. And this, Bruce, is also why I made the transition more into coaching is that it's we know what to do, but we just don't do it. So mindfulness as far as food is 100% correlation. Right. So just stopping and being aware, how does that food really make me feel? Right. That's part of it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of one of those things. Like if you look at the cell cycle, right, there's checks and balances, right? A cell replicates and in a, I guess you could say gross sense, cancer or certain what the the modern medical model calls diseases Mm -hmm. or a state of discomfort is really uncontrolled cell growth, right? The checks and balances are not happening the way that they should. So if someone consistently eats and they notice that every single time they have this certain meal that they want to take a nap afterwards, Mm -hmm. food is not a means to napping. Food is a means (laughs) to nourishment. I know this is utterly simplistic, but you know, it's really true in that if, if you eat something and you consistently feel low energy afterwards, look at that. Eliminate it from your diet for a little while. Try something different. Add things in, take things out. And it really comes down to being mindful and being able to assess, is this producing the result I'm looking for? Now, the trick, Bruce, is if you're not looking for a specific result other than, ooh, this tastes good, yummy, 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 eat, 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 uh, nap time. That's a very different cycle than I need energy to meet with my clients. I need energy to affect change in the world, to produce my podcast, to do this, to do X, Y, and Z. So there's mindfulness is completely tied for me personally into just like everything I do. I I really think this is so right on, Jeff. And it, it conjured up an image as you were talking. When I was growing up, I grew up on a farm and four brothers, and we had the big farm kitchen. And in the farm kitchen, we had this couch. And so we would have a meal together. <laughs> and we'd my mom always made this homemade bread, right? So we'd have this meal together, and we'd eat all this bread and mashed potatoes and all this. And then there'd always be a fight. Who is the first one to get to the couch after, after the meal? Because you just felt like, oh, you just had to lay down, you know? So absolutely true. That's not the way it's supposed to be, is it? (laughs) No, not at all. I mean, you know, the one thing too, Bruce, that I fell into, I guess you can say in being a personal chef and working with people that had stage three, stage four cancer was that most people in those situations take food seriously because they think they have to, Uh, right? Most of them, it was their last resort. You know, they went through chemo, they went through radiation, and they were still doing it. And they did the food as almost like, this is it. This is the thing I'm going to try last. 
Right. So for me, that kind of imbued a very serious, strict sense around food. And I, one thing I want to stress for your listeners too, though, is that food is meant to be fun, mm-hmm. right? If you eat something and you eat it out of guilt, you're eating guilt. Again, like I said, there's a metaphysical sense to this, but it's, it's, you eat, if you eat something and you enjoy it to the nth degree, that's way, way, way more beneficial than eating something and feeling like, oh, I just ate chocolate cake and I'm going to do this and then I'm going to feel like that and, da, 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 and, da, da, and giving yourself a story about why it was bad. I'm not saying eat chocolate cake every day. I'm just saying the mindfulness behind it is to eat with intention to give yourself a treat because you're like, Ooh, I really want to enjoy this. So there's, there's a sense that, you know, there's a, a mindfulness, there's a thought process, there's an intention behind eating that is have fun with it and have a strategy, but don't let that take over your life. And so there's a fine line between eating and be, being disciplined about what you eat and just relaxing and choosing to eat the right kinds of things. What are your thoughts on discipline? I'm a huge discipline for me is very different than mainstream discipline in a sense. Some people could hear discipline and say, oh, well, that's rules and regulations or Mm -hmm. that's this, that's that. I think that guidelines are great. Sometimes I will say, and my wife will agree with this, is Mm -hmm. that I do tend to get a little not controlling, but I like rules in the sense that I think order is great. But the, the trick is that for me, discipline helps me get things done in a better way. So, for instance, like discipline as an entrepreneur, discipline as a business owner and a coach, for me, if I have five or six clients and they all have different projects, for me, discipline means making sure that they all get the right material at the right time, that I'm checking off tasks, that my calendar is managed. It's not like a fun activity, but at the end of the day, making sure with discipline that I sit down, I look at my list of what I did today look at what did get done, look at what did not get done, move to tomorrow, what's important, and, and do the, you know, the, like I mentioned before, the cell cycle check, so to speak, that's important. And that's discipline. And that's not easy for everyone. So I think for me personally, discipline, again, taken with a grain of salt, some people need more than others, depending on your lifestyle. I think discipline is one of the best habits that we can adopt. And especially I have a teenager, well, two teenagers. And, uh, Discipline is one of those things that I'm really attempting to instill in them is because with modern culture today and devices and pings and dings and notifications and our attention is being pulled every which way in another. And it's really an interesting state of affairs, if you will. So discipline in the sense of being able to stay focused and to be to chart one course until completed action, whether it's sending an email and not getting distracted by your phone and then somebody calling you from the other room, having the discipline to complete tasks, to follow through with what you promise and to, to do what you're here to do. For me, discipline, that's how it translates. Right. Well, I really like a lot of your ideas there because we do have to have discipline, but not if it becomes a, a negative thing and it's eating you up, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, you can look at it on a, in like a continuum, right? Like the yin and the yang of it or the yin and the yang of it, right? Mm-hmm. On one side, discipline can become contracting or too young, too tight, right? Where it yes. inhibits the flow, inhibits the flow of creativity, inhibits the flow of enthusiasm, of joy, of excitement. And on the other side, on the swing in the pendulum, discipline to the, to the yin side would be like being very lenient, not meeting things, being a little bit late for everything. Being, you know, on the yang side, it's being 
you know, perpetually early for everything, which is what I tend to do. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's understanding that there's not like a balance in the sense of there's a middle for everything, but there's a balance in the sense that the pendulum swings and it's important to be flexible because trees bend trees that are too rigid snap. Yeah, for sure. Jeff, I've worked in bullying prevention for quite a while, and I've seen how mindfulness can make a huge positive difference in the lives of anyone who has been bullied. Do you have a story about a specific bullying situation where mindfulness may have made a difference? You know, that's it's funny that you asked that because the conversation of bullying, I was actually bullied when, when I was younger. I remember really? it was, yeah, it was the worst ever. And it's wow. funny because now I'm, um, you know, maybe that paved the way, but I was a division one lacrosse player in, mm-hmm. in college. And I played lacrosse in high school. It was more in grade school, like before eighth grade. Sure. I was definitely um, more bullied and it was really difficult and I, I didn't like it actually. It was just horrible. But being, uh, I guess you say bullied, mindfulness, I didn't even know what the conversation was like, but I do see bullying come up a lot in business, for instance, like bosses bullying employees. Yes. Uh, and that I will say one, I do not stand for. I think it's one of the worst things ever. Cause it's like family, you know, like today, the way that businesses are run, we're moving into a, a new generation in business where before, you know, the business owner would live above the store, right? Yeah. Now we have virtual teams, but taking care of your team, just the same way you would take care of your family or friends or your circle of friends is really important, you know, to care about their well being. So mindfulness as far as bullying in business goes for me, I know I have people that come to me and will say, Oh, well, so-and-so said this and the other guy said this and no, no, no. And they'll complain. And for me, I, I hear the story and I list the same strategy. I'll listen, I'll track what I'm feeling in my body and I'll do my best not to agree with or disagree with the individual. What I'll do is I'll say, I'll offer suggestions and usually I'll be more on the receptive side. So instead of saying, well, what you should do is this, I go, well, would it be fair if you maybe recommunicated to person X that they need to follow procedures? And if you recommunicated to person Y, that it's very helpful for everybody on the team that if they follow procedures, communication's much easier and we don't have to spend a whole lot of time communicating with each other on what went wrong. Would that be okay if you chose one of those options? And the conversation goes way better than, well, what you need to do is this and this. Like with kids, it takes a little bit longer. But at the end, you're taking care of everybody in a much better way than if you just bark orders at them. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Jeff, can you think of a coaching client you've ever had, a situation where, you know, they just didn't understand this whole idea of mindfulness or this whole idea that you're describing about allowing and mindfulness really helped you get through that and help them see the light? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, A lot of people hear this especially when I was working with food because I made, Bruce, I made this transition from just being the food guy, mm-hmm. and we talked about this a little bit before, to being the life and business guy. So people generally would be like, well, I just want to eat something. And I'd be like, well, you can eat all day long until the cows come home, but you eat, what, maybe two hours a day total? What about the other 22? Right. So I would try and find angles to help them understand. If I couldn't, the thing that I would do is I would just give it up. Meaning I would say, you know what, I'm okay if they never get this. So it's almost like relinquishing the need for them to have to understand what I'm saying. So whether or not they got it, I relinquished my need for it. Which, Bruce, it's kind of funny how that works because when we relinquish our need 
for a certain outcome to happen, oftentimes that's something that brings that thing into existence faster. Like the Course in Miracles says it perfectly, infinite patience produces immediate results. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen that more times than I can believe. You know? I know, right? <laughs> it is. It's unbelievable. You think, oh, I just got to keep trying, 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 trying. And mm-hmm. you get you get tighter and you get more and more intense. And then it just seems to not be happening. And then when you just kind of step back and relax and take a deep breath and it's like, whoa, like how did that just unfold that way? You know? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's really true. It's really true. Jeff, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? Thich Nhat Hanh. Ah. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? It's uh, enabled me to allow myself to be completely present with what I feel and let that be okay. Tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness practice. It is my mindfulness practice. If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, what would it be? I know you've mentioned one already, but maybe you have another one. I have three, and they're actually on my desk because I pulled them out, you know, because I knew this was happening. Sure. I have Thich Nhat Hanh, Anger, Wisdom for Cooling the Flame. So right. if you tend to be on the hot side, that's a great one. Another one is called, by the same author, Thich Nhat Hanh, it's called True Love, A Practice for Awakening the Heart. And the other one is one I read uh, about eight months ago. It's by Adi Ashanti. It's called True Meditation. Uh, Really, really, really uh, fantastic book. He talks about meditative self-inquiry to inquire within, meditative self-inquiry. And it's all three absolutely fantastic books. And they're really my go-to for mindfulness. If I ever, you know, fall off the horse, so to speak, uh, those are the ones that I will reread. And the true love, a practice for awakening the heart, it's a great one. You could read that in a couple hours say, on a Sunday. That's my favorite time to read it. Mm-hmm. And it's just a quick read. Absolutely fantastic. Great. And these will all be in our show notes. So check that out at mindfulnessmode.com. Jeff, what advice would you give a person who is new to the idea of mindfulness and they'd like to start using it in their life? One of the keys for me for mindfulness, as I said a number of times, is breathing. Mm-hmm. I learned this. I did a number of 10-day silent Vipassana meditation retreats. And basically all you can do for 15 hours a day is sit there and meditate. No looking at each other, no physical contact. Men and women are separate. Uh, really just you know, a very focused effort. As long as you're breathing, you need to be mindful. That's really all there is to it because it's one of those things that's like if you're not being mindful, then what else are you doing? You know, it's being mindful is washing the dishes and being aware that you're washing the dishes. It's, you know, listening to your spouse and and listening to your spouse and breathing and being aware of what's happening in your immediate environment. Uh, So, you know, that's the thing is just is be patient because like anything else with practice comes one new level of understanding and then the next level and then the next level and then the next level and just be okay with where you are now and know that there's not a destination. It's not to get anywhere other than just to be present, to be more loving or whatever it is that is your current focus. It's to amplify who you already are. Excellent thoughts, Jeff. Excellent thoughts. And before we go, I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit more about your 10-day Vipassa experiences and just share what made you want to do that and what it was like experiencing it. Yeah, Bruce, I'd be more than happy to. And it's funny because the the girl I was dating at the time, 
I was a personal chef and I was working for one of my all-time favorite clients in Boston, actually in Newton, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were there and she had said something. I was, it was a busy time and she said, let's go do this 10-day silent meditation retreat. And I, I'm sure you've been busy before, Bruce, and you said, yeah, yeah that sounds great. Yeah. Right. Right. So I naturally were cooking. I remember exactly we were, she had this, it was an aga stove. It's this very uh, Swedish or Norwegian stove. It has different chambers that are different temperatures. Mm-hmm. I remember I was putting something in the bottom right stove and she said, Hey, what do you think if we go to this meditation retreat? I said, sounds awesome. Sign me up. Let's do it. <laughs> so we get there yeah. and there's the, the reception, if you will, the, the check-in place. And they say, when you get there, Okay, there's no notepads, no books, no writing utensils, no audio devices, basically no distractions, right? Then you sign a waiver that says you agree to these things, which means you know, like no look, no eye contact, no physical touch. Um, basically, you're just going about your day with all these other people that are also meditating and you agree not to interact with anybody. And they have other things. It was absolutely hilarious. So I remember we're, we're there, men on one side, women on the other side, and the person is in front giving us this conversation. So I'm like looking over at her and I can't say anything. So, you know, I'm doing my, my Jedi mind tricks and I'm like trying to get her attention. She finally looks back and I mouthed over. I'm like, are you kidding me? What is this? <laughs> and about five days in, I had a, a very profound I guess yeah, like it felt like a snap. Like I had a, my knee, you know, sitting cross-legged on a pillow for, you know, like I said, like 15 hours-ish a day with a recess here and there. Things happen. You know, you're breathing, you're tracking your body. And I had something happen to my knee and I just started weeping. I was crying. It was just like uncontrollable. And it's interesting because I had um, knee injuries in, in college and in high school in lacrosse. I had a, a torn meniscus and dislocated patella, dislocated kneecap, uh, and a PCL tear. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of knee challenges and it was interesting what visions and emotions things came up as a result. But that 10 days, Bruce, it was literally the best thing ever. Like I, I'm so glad that it happened. It's so much that I wanted to stay for 30 days at the end of the 10 days, but we had to go back and do work and stuff. So then I, at that point I was like, I'm going to do another one and another one. And I just, I haven't been back and I know it's on my list to do. It's absolutely the best thing I I could ever do. And it's one of those things too, where you never really know what the result's going to be and sitting there watching your mind and, you know, complete silence for 10 days, not talking at all. By the end, I can just remember feeling so fresh and new and new sense of creativity, new sense of possibility. I felt 10, 15 years younger. I already feel young. I mean, I train every day, I do all kinds of stuff. And it was just the best experience ever. And I, if anyone's considering it at all, I definitely recommend doing one because they're so amazing and profound. Right. Mindful Tribe. I hope you were really tuned into that because, man, that sounds amazing. And yet it can be something that you might be filled with fear thinking about what would it be like for 10 days not to speak or to have eye contact. And we've heard directly from Jeff that it's just absolutely refreshing and and just a great experience. So that is very cool to hear that, Jeff. Jeff, it's been such a pleasure to spend this time with you today. And I'm really Really inspired by what you've done with your life and how you're helping other people get on the right track and so on. So I just want to ask you if you would share with Mindful Tribe about how we can contact you and learn more about what you do. 
Yeah, I'd be happy to, Bruce. Uh, you can find me. I'm I'm on a lot of stuff. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Augustinelli, on Instagram at Jeff Augustinelli, on Facebook as Jeff Augustinelli, if you just search for that. Uh, you can also find me on Snapchat. So, Bruce, maybe I could uh, put that in the show notes. I'm kind of on every social media platform, but you could also go to jeffaugustinelli.com or jeffa.co for short, just for spelling reasons. Sure. And you can find everything about me there, podcasts is there, and everything else. Okay, that's great. Well, it's been fantastic. All the best to you, Jeff. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. In appreciation, I'll mention you at the top of an upcoming show. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.